but I appreciate you being here, and I look forward to our conversation. I so I'm going to start. Hello, I'm Annette, and thank you for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to interview my friend, Dr. Mark Millarn. And Mark, I'm going to ask you to tell my listeners about yourself a little bit. Uh, I'm a senior vice president and executive dean of the Teachers College at Western Governors University, uh, which is the largest college of education in the United States, serving about a little over 30,000 students in all 50 states, 50,000 alumni over the last 20 years. In fact, we're about coming into our a celebration at South by Southwest EDU of celebrating 20 years from idea to impact. So it's been a pretty uh, compelling and fun journey for Western Governors. I've, I've been a part of Western Governors journey from uh, early days. In 2003, I was on their board of trustees. Um, I left the board of trustees in 2009 to go to the Gates Foundation, um, launching the post-secondary success initiative. Um, after I left Gates, I came back and actually helped launch the uh, the first state, one of the first state affiliates for Western Governors, WGU Texas. And there are now seven of those across the United States. And then I came back this round really to, uh, to help lead the College of Education into the next generation. And the idea was to create the most progressive and uh, impactful College of Education in the United States. Couldn't resist that tempting. Uh, assignment. So uh, in, in previous roles, I've founded a company called Civitas Learning, which is focused on analytics and student success. Uh, as you as said previously, I was with the Gates Foundation um, launching their post-secondary success initiative. Um, and in a past life, I was uh, president and CEO of the League for Innovation in the Community College, um, large association of community colleges uh, all across North America and some around the world, um, kind of catalyzing innovation. So long story short, I have been a Good troublemaker in the student success arena for uh, coming into my third decade. Um, and I've worked with some really fun people doing some pretty compelling work. And uh, my, I guess my trademark is uh, is innovating and scaling um, impactful student success work uh, in lots of sectors, K-12, uh, community colleges and universities, and even in the workforce world. Well, great. Um, wow. <laughs> You and I have known each other for a while, probably back when you were the Gates, because I know we, you know, interfaced at some of the meetings that you and I both attended, and we were a recipient of one of the Gates grants. Yeah, the collective but, impact work. Yeah. yeah, and then we both now sit on the Hope Center board with Dr. Sarah Goldrick Robb, so we've you know interfaced there quite a bit. Gosh. WGU is 20 years old. Actually, a lot older than that. So we, we were founded really in from the 19 Western Governors back in 1996, launched out officially in 97. So the Teachers College is the is it's hard to pinpoint exactly, but around 2001, we um, got our first grant, uh, $10 million from the U.S. Department of Education um, to help create a um, nonprofit competency-based model that would help meet the teaching shortage of the time. And so we were, uh, Rod Page was the Department of Secretary at the time, a big champion of our work. Uh, we went on to work with every secretary since, um, doing all kinds of work. So uh, uh, it's fun, like I said, coming into celebrating our 20th year doing this work. So our other colleges, we have a College of Health Professions, College of Information Technology, and a College of Business. Uh, about 130,000 students uh, across all 50 states. And again, Western Governors is a great example of, uh, of just a compelling idea that has made a powerful difference in education. Did it start out online? I mean, back then, 
there was a lot less online access. No, it did. It, it was it was the early days of online education, and the Western governors um, they were really trying to solve some discrete problems. Um, there's a lot of real estate in the Western states, and a lot of people who lived in rural areas, and so. Well, I think Governor Levitt and Governor Romer from Colorado, in particular, Levitt from Utah, they were very interested in the idea of could you use the best of these online tools, combine it with a new model of learning. And the model of learning was really around learning-centered education. You progress when you learn, not based on time. And, and they kind of labeled it competency-based education. Once you prove you're competent, you move on to the next thing. And the idea was, is this model of education could, one, help meet their needs and meeting and kind of reaching out to these rural areas, but at the same time could be a, an exemplar for the rest of higher education, of how they could challenge what they were doing and begin to allow people to progress based on learning, not based on seat time. So that really appealed to those Western Governors. The National Governors Association got excited after that, but the Western Governors Association were the ones they really kicked off with this. They signed a big compact, each put in a certain amount of money, and they began to launch it. And uh, it took a while to kind of get the concept going. And, they, you know, WG was lambasted by the Chronicle of Higher Ed for being a crazy idea and like all those kind of things. But around 2003, uh, I, I chaired the, one of the first, uh, actually the first accreditation. I chaired the, the board uh, academic policy committee. We had the Higher Learning Commission come in and it was just powerful to watch the educators come in ready I think a lot of peer folks came in, you know, oh, it's an online school. And, and then they didn't realize this model is totally based on learning. Students have to absolutely demonstrate they have learned, mastered what they were supposed to master before they progress. And that really blew a lot of them away. And from that point forward, we got accreditation and the university took off from there. And if you look back, that was pretty visionary at the time, right? Oh, yeah. And again, the, the idea was a great, what I think is interesting, and I've seen this in numbers of things in my career, and I know you have as well, and that is, that when something goes from a crazy idea to, oh, of course, <laughs> it's always kind of fun. Like, you know, the internet, I, I began my career as a, you know, kind of a young rising kind of scholar and an educator trying to convince educators that the internet was a thing. I kid you not. It really was this idea that we were going to be using this thing called the Internet. And that was in the early days of Mosaic, Mosaic and Netscape Navigator and then soon Internet Explorer. And once that kind of ball started rolling, it was amazing how it, you know, obviously how it took off. But again, it went from there to learning management systems. So we're going to be using these whether you like them or not. And sure enough, now it's a mainstay in the world of education, competency-based education online. It's a mainstay. That's how I was with analytics as well as, you know, these trends are going to happen. And the question for us as educators is figuring out highest, best use and to make sure we're using them, not being used by them and kind of part of putting them on purpose. Well, that certainly has ramifications in in our all our worlds right now. But yeah. but certainly the online learning. I mean, we're recording this the week of the inauguration in January 2021. We've gone through uh, the pandemic. Uh, still involved, still in the pandemic. Yeah. And most of our learning, much of our learning is online, or at least that is an option for K-12, yeah. for community colleges, for universities. Have y'all been able to, has Western governors been able to really say, we've been doing this a long time. Here are some great tools. Here are some great resources. Here's what you don't want to do. Yeah. Has there been good learning in the past 20 years on that? Such I'm sure good. there has. It's such a great question. I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in the spring were so eager to get back 
you know, that they began to conflate the emergency remote learning that everybody started doing using online tools with the 20 years of, of learning that people had done in this enterprise of leveraging online and blended learning. So the folks like Western Governors, Arizona State, University of Central Florida, the big community colleges like Rio Salado Community College, Lone Star, and others who've done this for a while, um, they had a lot to teach. They had a lot to give, right, in terms of what this were. But there are people who just jumped to it because they had to. It was an emergency. But that's, you know, it's like equating a, you know, a life raft with a, you know, with a luxury liner. To, they, they both float, but they're, they're different things, right? And unfortunately, because people were in such a rush, I don't think um, there are a lot of colleges that didn't plan very well for the fall. They were kind of hope casting for the fall and they didn't really take advantage of all the things they could have taken advantage of. But I think now people are realizing, uh, one, the distinction between the emergency remote learning and the disciplines of online and blended learning and that players out there who've been doing it for a long time have a lot to, to give and they can learn from them. Also, by the way, now I think a lot of you know really talented educators didn't realize these tools were this ubiquitous and this easy to use. You have a lot of folks who've done some really compelling things. I, I actually think one of the most important conversations is what are we going to bring forward out of this pandemic? And I think we're going to bring forward a lot of learning from the people who've been at this for 20 years. We're also going to bring forward a lot of new innovations from people who really tried this. And I think we're we're never going to go back to the day where we were. these. In many places, these digital tools, these online learning resources were effectively segregated, right? There was a small segment of the institution that was using it. Everything else was regular, right? I don't think that's ever it's ever going to go back. Now people realize, oh, virtual office hours are actually really convenient for commuter students, right? Lots more show up and you get a lot more interaction with the faculty. Oh, we can get a lot of interaction uh, in different ways, leveraging online and face-to-face. -face. People now realize I think they want to both hand in this. And I think that's going to be part of our work going forward. Not to mention, I think we're going to have some really interesting conversations about just continuity of service capabilities. Can you, in the middle of a natural disaster, in the middle of a weather event and other things, can you just continue to learn by leveraging this infrastructure that we all kind of have, right? And I think that's gonna be part of the diet. I think you're gonna see accrediting agencies and state agencies starting to require your plan. Like what's your plan to use these tools, right? So do you see this morphing, and you've jumped ahead to some of my questions, so thank you for, for that, and I'm not surprised. Do you see some of this morphing into very almost fluid? I'm an Emerald College student. I'm also a Western Governor student. I'm a, I can be a student at multiple colleges to get different tools, or do you see it just, okay, you either go to WGU or you go to Emerald College or you go to UT or whatever? I think we're going to see a lot of collaboration between institutions and, and a lot of, um, uh, for example, we have a program we've rolled out at Western Governors called the OWL Transfer Program. And that program, a student is dual enrolled, for example, in both Amarillo and in Western Governors. Now, what'd you call it? We call it the owl. So night owl is our our our, our okay. uh, mod, our uh, mascot. Uh, so oh, okay, we're badgers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the owls and the badgers get along. We get the transfer agreement going, and what we know is that if you have a student who's going to come into our world, maybe they're taking some online, some on ground with you, but they want to stay in Amarillo, but they want to get whatever, some kind of medical degree, some kind of teaching degree, whatever it is. They can, for example, maybe they're a parapro in a local school in Amarillo, and they're taking uh, an under, they're getting their AA at Amarillo College, but they want to go on to become a teacher. They can
can stay as a parapro, working paratro, come to Western Governors, finish that teaching degree, even go on to get a master's you know, from Western Governors. If they're part of the OWL program, they're going to immediately be connected to our community of care while they're at Amarillo. And the idea is that they can start engaging with us and connecting with us while they're going through that process. And the idea is we really want that to be a joint learning experience. I think you're going to see more and more of these. You're also going to see folks, learners now are exposed to the broader resources that are out there like never before. Uh, we have had this mass orientation to the digital curricular resources that are available. By the way, parents know this now. Students, uh, all different ages and stages of students know it. Educators know it. I think you're going to have people asking a lot of questions about the models that they want to leverage to be able to learn. And it's going to change the probably the pathways students take through higher ed. So it's a really good question. I think you're going to still see some folk take advantage of the very traditional models, but especially working students and students who have complicated lives are going to probably be able to kind of maestro that model together in a way that's going to make more sense for them. You suggested some students have complicated lives. Do you have any initiatives around the complicated lives that your students have at Western Governors? Yeah, I mean, much like the community colleges and the other access universities are out there, we have, um, you know, Western Governors learned early on, we were focused on meeting the needs of the underserved. 75% of our students are in one of our underserved categories, whether it's first generation, low income, inner city or rural, like those, all those that we have a whole set of categories around that. And one of the things we've found is many of those students have academic challenges, no doubt about it. But what we've seen is as significant or more significant are these extra academic, you know, beyond academic issues. And the things that Sarah Goldberg Rabb and the folks at the Hope Center talk about, whether it's housing insecurity, food insecurity, and now it's pandemic-related challenges, it's health-related challenges in a really big way. So we have really leaned into that and always have in our world. We actually have this thing we call our community of care. The community of care has been around since WG's beginning. We have a specialty faculty model. So with us, you have a program mentor faculty member who meets you at the front door and is with you until you cross the finish line. And in addition to that faculty member who you meet with once a week, once every other week, you're going to have a live conversation with that faculty member. You have course instructors who come in and come out of your life based on the courses you're taking. And then you have other community of care members, including like our course instructors don't do the evaluation. We have another group of faculty that are specialists at evaluation, and they give you rich feedback and motivation and connection. So this whole community of care of faculty are wrapped around these students to support them, not to mention a data infrastructure that just tells you the students on course or off course like no other. So it, the ability for us as professionals to case manage is pretty clear and compelling. And the idea for us is to understand how do you meet the needs of that student? So if we get a signal that a student's having challenge, we're going to have a conversation and find, and we're going to basically going to find out what's going on, what can we do to help you? So we'll use everything from a, a, a combination of financial aid, emergency grants, different kinds of employee assistance programs, just all these different resources that we use to wrap kind of care and support around those students. And obviously the most, you know, the one that's front and center for us is COVID. Um, just, you know, hard, painful truths for us at Teachers College. We've lost five students in the last month. Um, you know, our, our students, we actually have tags for students who have family members who have COVID, kids who have COVID, who are teaching in environments that are, you know, dynamic because they're either on, in, on ground or they're coming out. I mean, and I just to give you kind of a, a perspective of this, we have anywhere from three to 5,000 students in clinical experiences at any given time, meaning they're actually in the field in all 50 states in schools. And 
you know, the minute COVID hit, they were suddenly online. They were then kind of whipsawed back, then they're back. And we've had to stay with them the entire time to wrap support around those student teachers to make sure that they have the support they need. And they've turned out to be really useful resources for these schools because that's like young talent that's ready to jump in, who, by the way, know online, right, who are experienced in this kind of work. So that's been that's been pretty powerful. Our job is to try to wrap the support around them. We have this cultural value of one by one, even though we're, a, we, again, we're the largest college of ed in the country. We are a one by one university. We meet students where they are and help that student get to where they need to need to go with the right kind of support at the right time in the right way. So in the teacher's college, if I'm trying to do my student um, student teaching, student teaching. Thank you. Yes. I think I'd know that by now. (laughs) Uh, If I'm trying to do my student teaching in the Texas Panhandle, do you work with the local ESCs or ISDs to place the students? Oh, no. We have clinical faculty all over the United States that work directly with the school districts. So we have relationships with school districts. And our goal is to get them as close, to get a school district as close to that student as possible so that they can have that teaching experience with a local school district. And we've got a pretty, you know, successful field experience team that works closely with that. In addition to that, we also pilot things like, um, you know, again, we're a cutting edge university. We use immersion software, which is virtual reality. So our students are going into virtual classrooms and having DEI incidents and having you know, experience with special education you know, dynamics. And the idea is we want them to have that clinical connection. The National Center for Teacher Quality rates us as an A for teach for clinical experiences and for classroom management. And part of the reason is we, you know, we're deep into reality therapy, right? Trying to make sure these people, you know, that our students have actually been in the space and been connected to these folks. Um, and again, at, at Western Governors, there's no C's. You cannot progress with <laughs> with the equivalent of a C. You have to master something before you go to the next one. So our teachers are on a different kind of path. That's interesting and fascinating. Given your geographic history, do you have any focus on rural communities? Oh, that's where we were founded. We were founded right. based on rural communities. Um, you know, Jim Geringer, Governor Geringer from Wyoming, was probably one of the most passionate talking about the idea of how we could leverage these resources to help rural communities to equalize the playing field, to make sure we are bringing some of the best and the brightest and the best resources to these rural communities. So especially for folks who want to learn and earn a credential in their own background and backyard and stay in their own backyard. Uh, so we can bring that learning to them and help them succeed. And if they want to become a teacher in their local school district, they don't have to go. They don't have to leave the panhandle to go to Austin to get a degree, right? Part of your background is in philanthropy. Talk about the public-private partnerships between schools, colleges, universities, and the philanthropic world. I think you know, the philanthropic community um, in the education space in the last few decades is, has kind of lurched a little bit, right? Because they've, I think, we're really um, focused on a number of innovations and kind of key, kind of key challenges in the '70s and the '80s. But coming to the 90s and especially the late 90s and 2000s, people began to realize we've got some real challenges around the success rates of our students. And then by the end of the 2000s, you know, the completion agenda became came into full swing when people started looking at the fact that a high income student is 90 percent likely to get a second post secondary credential and a low income student, you know, lowest income quartile was 10% 10% likely to get a post-secondary credential, and it varies by by different communities, but that's pretty much the data. That was heartbreaking. And then mm-hmm. that the inter- intergenerational transmission of poverty 
had never been higher right than it was at that point and i think the, the realization that we have to do better at trying to give people pathways to possibility and the philanthropic community said what can we do to get these folks iterating and ideating and innovating around trying to help more and more diverse students be more successful on these educational pathways whether it was in k-12 community colleges or universities and that really was the work of you know i think 2000 2005 till around 2020, right, is people trying to figure out how do we help more and more diverse students be more successful than ever before. And, and now we're realizing there, there are some pretty deep policy, you know, practice barriers and all kinds of other challenges in the way. But one of the things I'm most encouraged by, and I know you resonate with this because of your own work with the Hope Center and other things you advocate, is the realization that you have to meet students where they are in their communities. You know, a low-income student is 80% likely to stay in their region for any and every credential they possibly get. So figuring out how you can get that K-12 school district to work with that community college, to work with that university, to work with employers, to work with nonprofits, social service agencies, that's when the good stuff comes in, right? That's when you really get collective impact. And that's what's exciting now is you're starting to see more and more philanthropy realize you've got to take a regional perspective on this. I've, I've been a big advocate along with Richard Rhodes, who's the president of, of Austin Community College. He and I, when he was at El Paso, we talked about this a lot, the idea of regional education ecosystems, right? And that ecosystem is a bunch of interconnected parts. And if you really want low-income first-generation students to be successful, you have to learn how to tune an ecosystem. You have to learn how to connect an ecosystem, build conversations in an ecosystem. And I know that's been part and parcel of your work for, uh, for oh, yeah. decades. Yeah. And then uh, we get that all built and COVID happens. I know. And we have well, that. Well, in some ways, and I would say thank the Lord we did that work. If, yes. we hadn't, if we hadn't done that work pre-COVID, if for, think about this, if we didn't have the technology resources we have, if we didn't have the data systems we have and the connections in our communities, think about how much worse this would be, how oh, yeah. deeply isolating this would be. Yeah. And I just know that Amarillo College, because of all of the work we've done here and the ecosystem building we have done through Collective Impact and working with our regional university and our other community colleges and our ISDs and our business communities has been in better shape. And also just, you know, as you said, recognizing and meeting the students where they are has been huge. And I just worry going forward, there could be so many more challenges. But communities that have already been doing that, I think are in better shape to address those needs. But right now, the challenges are so many of our non-traditional students have a hard time getting back into school because they've lost their jobs. They've got kids at home. They've got families who are sick. I mean, there's just so many iterations of challenges for these people. The pandemic divide in many ways mirrors divides we always knew were there, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the data, high-income kids are actually doing better educationally. Uh, because they're accessing all kinds of new resources they didn't know were there, and they're accelerating. Um, Middle-income kids are kind of staying the same, but low-income kids are falling off the cliff. You know, they're having all kinds of challenges. And by the way, I think this mirrors in the adult population, you know, where um, high-income kids are taking a gap year, right? And then they're going to come back and go to the normal semester. That that's because that's a luxury that they have, right? To be able Mm -hmm. to do that. Middle-income kids are struggling and striving through all the online options that are there and doing what they can do, but they're doing it because the support's really there. But a lot of low-income folks just completely drop their plans altogether and are, they're in sustenance mode. They're like, how do I survive right now, right? 
And the question is, you know, how many of those folks are we going to be able to get back on a post-secondary pass? I don't know. I mean, what kind of gap are we going to end up having in those folks who have had to, like, forestall, they had to jump back from any of their aspirations and just take care of the house for the moment, take care of their kids for the moment, whatever it's going to be. Can they get back on track? And I think that's going to be the work of places like Western Governors, the place of, you know, of Amarillo College, where you, you know your community so well and they trust you. So when you reach out and they you say, we've got resources, we can help you kind of get back on the path. I think they're going to be listening. And I think that's part of what we have to start figuring out is what are those reentry strategies, reconnection strategies? So why would a student choose to go to Western Governors as opposed to UT, Amarillo College? Yeah. You know, Lone Star. Talk about Western Governors a little bit. It's 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 such a good example or a good question because I think people in the world of education love to get into conversations about the one best way to teach and read students. Um, there is no one best way. Um, people are very different. Times are very different. Situations are very different. Um, when we launched WGU Texas, for example, um, one of our biggest supporters was Bill Powers, who is the president of, w, of, of uh, UT Austin. And one of the things he would say, and he and I would both talk about it, I would say, if you are an 18-year-old right out of high school and you want to have an on-campus experience and go to football games, for the love of God, you could go to UT, you're going to go to A&M, you're going to go somewhere like that, right? If you are a 29-year-old job changer who needs flexibility to advance while you work, you're probably not going to go to UT Austin. You need something else. You might start at Amarillo College. You might start at Austin Community College. And then, by the way, you might still need that flexibility after you get through your associate's degree and you want to get your bachelor's degree. A place like Western Governors then becomes a great option because you can transfer to us, continue to work while you learn and get your bachelor's degree and even get your master's degree. The other example I'd use all the time is, is our specialty at Western Governors um, is people with some college and no credential. Right. And there are 38 million people in this country with some college and no credential. The, wow. vast, the vast majority of them left in good academic standing. They left because life happened. Right. And in Texas alone, three and a half million people with some college and no credential. Like that's just the and so I always always say for West for WGU Texas. We'll take 1%. You have all the rest, right? <laughs> There's enough work for all of us. This is not a zero-sum game, right? This is a positive-sum game. There's so much work to be done. So I'm a big believer. It's not a better-than conversation. I don't think it's, is WGU better than Amarillo, better than UT Austin? Or they, it all is based on who that student is, what the situation is, what the timing is. What I know is that our education ecosystem is better with these options, Right. I want great K-12, great community colleges, great access universities, great research universities. I mean, we're all about to take a pandemic that came out of 17 years of research post SARS you know, um, infections. Thank the Lord these research universities have been around right, to do this mm -hmm. kind of work. I want research universities and we need places like Western Governors that can very much meet the needs of these working learners in different ways. We have a lot of work to do to kind of meet the education goals of this country. And one size fits all is not going to cut it. Talk about the teacher shortage because you're head of the teachers college there. Yeah, I think we're going to, the, the teacher shortage is going to be pretty acute. Uh, Annette, I think in both higher ed and especially in K-12, 
this the COVID situation really um, scared a lot of people. It also hurt a lot of people. It was pretty devastating to a number of communities. And I think we've seen massive teacher retirements. We've seen people who've just left left the field because it's been, you know, in some ways kind of frightening. Um, so state by state by state, if you look around, people are really looking at the teacher shortages um, post COVID that were probably going to come anyway because of our our demographics. But now it's made even worse. So I think we're going to have to really think through the strategies towards helping our students become teachers. Um, one of the things we're really focused on is the idea of, of helping them learn early in high school. Um, and, then, and then we really like the idea of working with um, community colleges in transfer programs to get them, because we're, we do work with the, NAT, with the um, National Association of Community College Teacher Education Programs, NACTEP. And, and the idea is they could be a parapro, work at the community college, get that credential, work and learn, and then come right to us and keep working and learning, even get paid on federal work study whether doing their demonstration teaching, right? That The idea is figuring out ways to help them work and learn and then move on to become a working teacher. And by the way, if you want to diversify your teaching core, that's the way you do it. You got to reach into those low-income communities and give them pathways towards teaching to be able to do this well. I just think we're going to have to hit on all cylinders. We're going to need community colleges. We're going to need access universities like 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 everything from West Texas, you know, A&M to places like Western Governors. I think we're all going to have to play a part in this because there's no way we can meet this teaching need without all of us playing, you know, playing our A game. I think you're right. Well, I know you're you're a visionary thinker, Mark, and I really like that. With or without COVID, talk about what the future of education could be. You used a phrase, I can't remember exactly how you said it, about using the data, not letting it control us. Yeah. Uh, you Do know, you we, the data not being used by it? <laughs> not being used by it. I think in Texas, we're being a little used by it through our current system, a current accountability system, and you don't need to respond to that. How do we best meet the needs? And you've you've had enough experience. You can talk K-12 as well, and, and you have kids. So, I mean, you know, you've, you've been there and, and seen what really happens. How do we best create problem solvers, critical thinkers, collaborative workers who are flexible enough to meet the needs of the future workforce? I think we have to have a commitment to education like never before, but not not in a pedantic way. I think we have to be a little careful in that. If, if you haven't read the book, The Tyranny of Merit, it's a compelling read. And in that book, they talk about this whole notion of credentialism and sometimes the meta message being that if you don't get a college education, you're not good enough, right? Um, I think college education is absolutely a pathway to opportunity for lots of students. By the way, so is technical education for many students. I think there are folks who can get, um, and community colleges offer all those kinds of pathways, right? Whether it's industry certification, associate's degrees, and the rest. I think learning is good for people, right? Learning gives people options, and I think there are lots of pathways they can go on. I have, a, I have a nephew who's basically a multimillionaire who got there by doing industry certifications in construction, right? And I've, at the same time, I've got a brother who's a, you know, was the CIO of Educause and got his doctorate. So there's everything in between. You can see the options of what people can do. I think we have to kind of embrace learning broadly and figure out the different paths students want to go on. I think there was a meta message that came out in the last decade is that we have to get everybody on the pathway towards a bachelor's degree. And I think we have to be careful about that. I think, and by the way, and I'm just going to say it on both sides, 
there are people who say, well, you're only saying that because um, you think that people who don't have money shouldn't go get a bachelor's degree. Dead wrong. I've talked to hundreds of students in student focus groups, and I can tell you this right now. Much of our mental health problem in a lot of our universities is you have a bunch of students who are forced into education pathways that are not them. They're not on journeys that are about, and they're hurting. And I think one of the reasons you're seeing the mental health crisis in higher ed is they're being forced into programs that don't make sense for them, right? So I think it's figuring out what is the right pathway for that student. And that means meeting them where they are, help them get on that path as, as in a low cost, high quality way, support them along the journey and help them get to where they wanna to go to a place where they have more choices. And, and what we know is this learning, if it's done well, is gonna give them more personal choices and more health choices, educational choices, economic choices. And that's the goal, right? Is to get that kind of community connection going there and using all of the tools at our disposal, whatever that's, that's gonna look like. And that's one of the reasons I'm a big believer in this idea of championing learning more broadly and, and get out of this idea of thinking there's one size fits all and figuring out how we can come together with lots of options and create lots of paths for these students. Now that's gonna mean we have to learn a lot more about who those students are, what kind of supports work for them, what kind of learning works for them. And, and we have to commit ourselves to some design thinking. I'm a big believer in design thinking. Design thinking is anchored in empathy. You understand who you're trying to serve. And then you bring all the resources together and design the strategy to help them get to where they want to go. And you measure, 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 try, test, and tune, try, test, and tune, right? And that try, test, and tune cycle allows you to figure out what works and what doesn't. I know you and Amarillo are all about this. We at Western Governors are all about this. We use, we make sure that we, as we try something, we test it and then we tune it. If it doesn't work, we try something else and we're gonna try to get there. So I think the road ahead in education is broader championing of learning and lots of different models with people looking at all the resources that are available, whether it's online blended, different models that are available like competency or traditional. And again, testing, trying, and tuning based on the empathy and their connection with those larger students. I wish there was a neater answer, but it's not a neat question, right? <laughs> this is a complicated question. I do think that just as I, I'm going to go back to the beginning where I talked about my early days trying to convince educators that the internet was a thing trying to convince them that learning management systems were actually gonna come, that analytics actually were gonna be a thing. We have more change coming in the next five to 10 years than we've seen in the last 50, without a doubt, especially post pandemic. We have got to be willing to take a deep breath and suspend our belief that there's one best way and, and be open to, again, trying, testing, and tuning and seeing what works and for whom and what way. It's not gonna be easy, but we have got to be learning-centered ourselves. And that learning-centeredness means that we have to be willing to try to learn new things, um, whether it's gonna be augmented reality and virtual reality or deep empathy and conversation and how we connect with students in real time. What does that look like? I'm, I'm really compelled by the combination of machine learning and, and human conversation, right? How do you kind of have the signal to know this person actually needs a conversation and a person comes in and connects with them? Those are all things we're going to have to learn about, but we've got to be willing and be open to, to doing it, which by the way, finally, will just be wonderful because there's nothing more humbling than admitting you don't know everything. <laughs> 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 and admitting you've got to learn because it's great for your students to see you struggle with the same kind of learning experience they're having to struggle with, right? Right. Wow. This has been a wonderful conversation and very thought-provoking, and I appreciate it, Mark. Do you have anything? I mean, we could talk all day, but I, I really want to respect your time. 
Are there things that we haven't talked about that our listeners need to hear from you? I, I think, you know, the last thing I would say is, is I think all of us who've been on education journeys have an obligation to reach back and help others who are striving. And I know we're dedicated to that. That's our professions, right, is to pull that in. But I think, you know, I, I always challenge graduates with the each one reach one. Whenever I do a convocation for a, for a you know, graduation ceremony, yeah, I tell the graduates, it's each one reach one. All of you finishing now, you have you have an obligation to reach back and find somebody who's striving and get them on a path towards learning because you know that learning is gonna make them better, stronger, faster, right? In terms of wherever they're going to go. So I think that's one part of it, but it's also the realization that we've got We've got parents out there that are really struggling to figure out what's the right path for their student, for their kids. They really are. And I'm really worried that they get this message of, like they, you know, we've got to get them into a high-end college. We can do this. We got to do this. And, you know, again, we end up with, in some ways, the mental health crisis we've ended up with because we're not listening to those kids and understanding the path they want to go on and trying to help them kind of get in a path that makes sense for them or like what education model is going to work for them. And, and it could be that they have to think about, yeah, it's not about going to university first. It's actually started Amarillo Community College and transfer. It might be the smartest thing in the world. Maybe it's go to the community college and go to a Western Governor's University. I think our mental models, our aperture has to open to the possibilities and think about how we can support those folks. And from the parents, I think then it goes to friends who are talking to their, their colleagues about what are they going to do next and helping them understand, hey, there are options for people like you. Yes, I know you're 45 and you're changing your job, but guess what? There are all kinds of good options and, and you, you too can learn. And yeah, it might take three years, but how old are you going to be in three years anyway? <laughs> Would you rather right. be three years older and have the credential or not? So I think that's where it's just this notion of community-based inspiration around learning is going to be pretty important on the road ahead. And I, I want to make sure we just don't leave that aside because it's not just the educators. It's got to be this community that is coming around the value of education and the, the different kinds of pathways that are going to help students get to where they need to go. And so many of our students have so little access or exposure to the incredible number of pathways and opportunities that are out there, whether they're 18 or 16 or 30. Unless you've seen it or experienced it or know somebody who's doing that, you don't understand what those opportunities might be. And what the opportunities are going to be in the future are very different than what they were when I was graduating college yep. or high school or whatever. It's really important to explore, to have mentors who can help you explore. And I like your whatever program you call it, where you have somebody meet you at the door and yeah. stay with you through the... Our community of care, our program mentors. And, our, and by the way, you'll have folks who have never met each other face-to-face -face who will fly to one of our commencements in one of our cities because we have the commencements all over the country, and they will be there to meet their mentor. And it's the first time they've met their mentor face-to-face, -face, and it is just like the most emotional, personal thing. And people will say, well, online is impersonal. I'm like, you've never been to our commencement. You've uh -uh. never seen that level of personal connection that people like because they're talking like we're talking right now face-to-face and having all kinds of deep personal conversations. They've been through the fire together, which is you know, amazing. It's amazing the kind of relationships you can build online, you know, just through my podcasting course. I'm lifelong friends with some of my fellow podcasters, you know. So, it, and it, it opened my eyes to this kind of learning before we were forced into it. So it was kind of nice to to see that, okay, there's there's hope, there's good stuff happening. Yeah. You, I do think, by the way, that's one of the roles of philanthropy is, is shining a light on these diverse pathways and making sure it's not just all about the standard pathway, right? Yeah, not just everybody needs a four-year degree. Yeah. Mark, 
Thank you. This has been a wonderful educational conversation. That's the point, right? And I appreciate you taking your time uh, twice now (laughs) to be on my podcast. Uh, I look forward to interacting with you in the future and staying connected. And thank you again. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education. 